You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great, am I on? Fantastic. Okay, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. My name's Anna, and I do feel really privileged uh, to be speaking to you this morning and continuing our series on Esther. So Adam kicked us off last week with an introduction to the book of Esther, and he spoke through the first two chapters, which I'm going to do a quick recap of now. He introduced us to some of the big characters of Esther. First of all, King Xerxes. Now, King Xerxes was a very powerful ruler in Persia who was incredibly wealthy, and he liked to show off his wealth. He liked to throw big parties to prove his wealth. He also had a very beautiful wife called Vashti, um, who he asked to join one such party, wearing her crown, in order to show her off as well. She refused. Bit of a a bit of a sort of biblical girl power in play here in uh, the beginning of Esther. Um, But it left her banished, and it left Xerxes without a queen and without a wife until a bit later on. He followed the advice of his attendants and called forth every young, beautiful virgin of his realm to take their virginity and choose which one he liked the best to keep as his queen. Um, Last week, we learnt that Esther, a young girl, beautiful in form and feature, an orphaned Jew, completed 12 months of beauty treatments. 12 months of beauty treatments? I mean, I get moaned at for sort of half an hour in the bathroom, but this is 12 months of beauty treatments. This is something else. Uh, Followed by one night to impress the king. And she was like this lucky winner of um, this bizarre and lengthy Miss Persia competition. And she became Queen Esther. So what a story so far. It's a bit like where it reminded me last week of some kind of Persian version of that TV show, Take Me Out. Anyone want to admit to to that? Where there's 20 or so beautiful women and they get chosen, one of them gets chosen, wins the competition, gets taken on holiday. It's kind of that merged with The Bachelor, uh, another similar program. Now, if you know either of those references, and I heard a few giggles and mutterings, there will be a prayer team to receive some ministry (laughs) afterwards. So, um, yeah. Look forward to that. So I'll be reading some parts of the story and telling some parts of the story from the end of Esther. So Esther chapter 2, verse 19, which is where Adam left us off last week, up to the end of chapter 3. So feel free to follow in your own Bible or on your Bible app. Some of the verses will be coming up on the screen as well. Now, God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther, but that doesn't mean he's not present And I really feel like God wanted me to talk about hope today, this morning. There's sin, there's mistakes, and there's tragedy through the book of Esther. But I believe God wanted me to talk about hope. Our lives can also be marked with sin, with mistakes, and with tragedies. Sin meaning the sins we commit against other people. Perhaps sins which are committed against us or sins that happen and then affect us. Mistakes, bad decisions. 
You took some information at the time. You thought you were making a good decision, but it turned out to be the wrong one. Can lead to some regret. And tragedies, things that we just can't explain why they happen. Or where's God in all this? What is God doing through this awful thing, this painful, hard circumstance that we might find ourselves in? So sin, mistakes, and tragedy, they complicate our life. Sometimes to the point of discouragement or despair. Now God's world, when he first made it, it was very good. There was no death. There were no sin or mistakes or tragedy. They entered it and complicated it. And becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you're saved from sin and Uh, Sorry, saved from tragedy or mistakes. But becoming a Christian, giving your life to Jesus Christ, does mean you have hope. And we heard a bit of that through what's been brought this morning already. You have hope for a future. Let's just pray before we read from Esther. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for meeting with us this morning already. Lord, we pray that as we listen to your word, as we think about what you are telling us this morning, that we would have eyes open, we'd have ears open, we would have our hearts wide open, each and every one of us, to what you would say to us individually. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we pick the story up it, um, in Esther chapter 2, verse 19. The very end of the chapter, so after Esther has become queen and there's been a big banquet to celebrate, um, he's a, quite a man of grand gesture and exuberance, this King Xerxes. So he invited all his nobles and officials, big party. Let's read what happens next. Chapter, uh, verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the Book of Annals, in the presence of the king. Now, that's the end of chapter 2. And chapter 3 goes on to present us with the crisis of the whole story. But before we read that, let's just pay a bit more attention to this final paragraph from chapter 2. Mordecai was Esther's cousin. And because she was an orphan, her parents um, had died, he had brought her up as if she were his own daughter. He was at the city gates, which is where the financial, the political, the business and the legal matters of the day would take place, suggesting that he had a position in government. Esther was obedient to him as though he were her father, and she kept her identity a secret, her identity being that she was a Jew, one of God's people in the Old Covenant. 
Now, the point here is the plot which Mordecai uncovers, the plot against the king. The whole thing is recorded very simply in the king's records, and then that's the end. That's the end of the chapter. Quite abrupt. Mordecai isn't thanked. He's not praised. He's not given a medal. He's not given a banquet. Nothing. He's just saved the king's life. It's an important point that you need to file away in your memory for a future week because it comes up again. It is a significant point in the story. So let's look at chapter 3 as the story unravels and as we get introduced to another key character. Now, I'm not going to read this part. I'm going to story tell it. So if you um, want to follow in your own Bible, that's absolutely fine. So with the plot exposed... King Xerxes escapes with his life and doesn't honor Mordecai, actually honors Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Now, very abruptly, again, Haman enters the scene. He was, he's given a seat of honor higher than any other noble. Essentially, he is made prime minister. And what's Mordecai given? Again, I just want to ham this point home. The guy who saved his life nothing. He is given nothing. The king commanded all royal officials to kneel down and pay Haman honor. Mordecai does not bow. There needs to be a bit of background given to Haman to fully understand the tension that has just entered the story. If this were a pantomime, there would be booing and hissing going on right now uh, at Haman's appearance. Um, Suddenly, a descendant of Agag and the Amalekites has been elevated, and Mordecai the Jew, but Jew in secret, is expected to bow the knee and honor him. Mordecai does not bow. Did you get that, everybody? Mordecai does not bow. The Amalekites are old enemies of the Jews. And in the Old Testament, where When God newly forms the nation of Israel, these were the first people to attack them, to try and destroy and obliterate them. And in Exodus 17, we read that the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So Mordecai, he's just exposed a plot against the king, gets nothing. All of a sudden, Haman a descendant of the Amalekites, is raised up. And Mordecai must bow. What did I mention before? Mordecai does not bow. Now, I'm not sure if this is a good move. We're not talking about, you know, worshipful bowing of uh, this guy. Um, and we're, we're talking about respectful bowing. You know, if, the, if the, a member of the royal family came in here right now, I'm sure we would curtsy or we would bow. We would show our respect in that way. And, and there are other people, other officials that you may be expected to bow at, bow to, towards. Um, now, remember, Mordecai is the guy who up until now has kept his Jewish identity a secret And he's forbidden Esther to reveal the fact that she is a Jew. He now decides to make a stand by not bowing to the newly promoted Haman. 
And this is quite a curious place for Mordecai to decide to draw the line. I mean, he allows his daughter, his adoptive daughter, to compete for the attention of the king. Sure, he checks on her every day. He's a bit concerned that she's all right. He may have even asked for a bit of that oil of myrrh moisturizer that she had so much of over those 12 months. Yes, go sleep with my teenage daughter, but bowing, hmm, I'm drawing the line at bowing. He's the guy who let his teenage adopted virgin daughter spend a year in Xerxes' playboy palace prepping for the sexual performance of her lifetime, and now he makes a stand. Sorry, I wasn't, a, I wasn't a fan of Mordecai when I first read this. Are you getting some of that? He's like, I am not bowing. I am doing the opposite of bowing. I am anti-bowing. Look, my feet are, are not even bowing. My toes aren't even bowing. I'm not bowing. He's making a real stand against this guy. Now, officials asked him why, why he was disobeying the king's command. And eventually, they told Haman of Mordecai's refusal. And then, Mordecai pulls out the religion card. Totally for his own benefit. I'm Jewish. Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you guys for like 40 years or something, but I am Jewish, therefore I'm not bowing. I wonder how many of us can be like that. We might keep our faith a bit private, a little bit secret. It's not, it's not ticked on our Facebook page. It's not the first thing that comes out of our mouths when we're having a conversation. Until it benefits you, and then all of a sudden, you're totally committed. Mordecai is living in Persia. He doesn't tell anyone he loves the God of the Bible. There's no evidence that he prayed, that he read the scripture, that he went to the temple, that he offered a sacrifice, that he sang songs. He doesn't defend his adoptive daughter. He's probably eating ham sandwiches at the city gates. He's a total compromised hypocrite. And Haman can't let it go. He didn't even notice Mordecai wasn't bowing to him. He had to get told that Mordecai wasn't bowing to him. And he's got things pretty, pretty good. He's doing pretty well for himself. He's got a seat of honor. In some versions of the Bible, it actually calls that a throne. He's got a throne. He's ruling. He's reigning. Everybody is bowing down to him except for that one guy. And what does he get obsessed with? He gets obsessed with that one guy. And again, we can get a bit like that. Everything in life is going really great, except for that one thing. And that's what we obsess over. That's what we freak out about, or that's who we're frustrated by. Haman is filled with fury and doesn't just want to kill Mordecai. He wants to kill the whole lot of his people group, the Jews. Haman sets his request before Xerxes, saying to the king, it's not in your best interests to tolerate these people, these Jews, as they do not obey the king's laws. Without doing his research this time, with no investigation into what Haman has requested, Xerxes gives his signet ring, in other words, his authority 
to Haman to carry out the genocide of the Jews. I'm going to read from verse 13. So this should come up on your screens. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the city, citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Some Bible versions say the city was perplexed. The city was in total shock. It was the whole city. Now, it's a sobering truth that we are all potentially one phone call away, one event away from our lives being turned upside down. Dreams shattered, plans spoilt. But it wasn't just the Jews who were shocked by this. It says that the citadel of Susa, the whole lot, it means everyone was thrown into confusion. And it's, it's wrong. It's all wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. God doesn't show up. God doesn't send a prophet. He doesn't speak from heaven. He doesn't do a miracle. There's no burning bush. There's no evidence that God shows up or speaks. Now, if we go back to the sins, mistakes, and tragedies, I'm sure you can spot many through what we've read. I want you to think about the sins, mistakes, and tragedies that might be in your life. Perhaps you've got a long list. Perhaps you've not got a long list. But perhaps there's that one thing, that one mistake, or that that one thing the doctor said, that tragedy, potential tragedy, that is blotting your life, that is ruling your life. Some of you might revisit your life and obsess over the details. What if? If only. This was a sin I committed. This was a sin they committed. This one goes back to my parents or my grandparents or my great-grandparents. That was a mistake. I thought that was a good idea. I regret that happening. That was a tragedy. And it's kind of the shoulda, woulda, coulda thing. The sins, mistakes, and tragedies. And this story is full of them. I'm going to whiz through some that you might have picked up already. The point is they shouldn't have happened just like our world, just like in our lives, shouldn't be like that. Number one, Esther and Mordecai should have been walking faithfully with God. They should have been praying. They should have been worshipping. Esther and Mordecai should not have concealed their faith for so long. Again, we're not talking about wearing it plastered on your T-shirt every day. We're not, pretend, we're not saying that every job interview you go to you're going to witness to the people there interviewing you or in every conversation. But if your life is concealing your relationship with God, then actually you're worshipping comfort rather than worshipping him. Xerxes 
should not have divorced his wife Vashti. I mean, she was disobedient. She said no, but she said no for, well, we think for righteous reasons. He shouldn't have divorced her. Xerxes should not have listened to bad counsel and turned his palace into a playboy mansion. Mordecai should not have allowed Esther to enter the competition. Esther should not have lost her virginity to a pagan Gentile. Some of this out of her control, but it shouldn't have happened. And therefore, all those things mean that Esther shouldn't have been queen of Persia. Mordecai should not have been overlooked for saving the king's life. Mordecai should have bowed to Haman. Haman, though, should not even have existed. Earlier in the Bible, King Saul was told by God to kill all the Agagites, but he didn't. He let the Agagite king live, and therefore Haman existed. Haman should not have sought to take out his wrath against one man on all Jews. That's racism. Xerxes should not have given his signet ring, his authority, away before checking the facts. Now, you may have spotted more mistakes and sins and tragedies. You might not have agreed with everything on my list. You may have your own personal list. There's um, a common little life motto that some people use, that everything happens for a reason. And I would say, actually, no. (laughs) Some things are wrong, and some things shouldn't happen. God can use them for a good reason, but they are wrong things. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is good, and he is not evil. Everything God does and wants is good. Not everything is God's will, but everything is used for God's will. And there's a big difference. Now back to hope. Hope is expectation for the future. But it can be based on our experiences of the past. Our hope for our futures can be based on what we've already experienced. So if you imagine, I I sometimes watch the school netball team play games against other schools in the area, and if they've had a really bad first half, if their score is, you know, if they're losing, the score is in favor of the other team, they come off, they have, you know, five minutes um, interval, they go back on, and their shoulders are slumped, Their, their faces are downcast, They already know that they don't have hope for this game because of what's already happened, what the score already is. Their hope is diminished because of that. Their experience of the past affects their hope for the future. And the Jewish people of the Old Testament had nothing like the hope that we can have this side of the cross. There is intonation of this hope in these verses. In verse 7 and verse 13, 13, um, which is significant because of the timing. Haman's decree for the genocide is sent forth on the eve of Passover, which goes back to Exodus. In Exodus, where the country, it wasn't Persia, it was then, it was Egypt, and the ruler wasn't Xerxes, the ruler was Pharaoh. But it's the same thing. 
One who is worshipped like a god, ruling over God's people and abusing them. And the decree from Haman is on the eve of Passover. He's not the first one to try to destroy God's people. And as God delivered them from Egypt, he will deliver them from Persia many years later. And this all, and we heard this earlier already, this all leans towards Jesus. The whole Bible's one story with one hero, Jesus comes. Jesus is the king seated on a throne like Xerxes, but he does something that Xerxes never does. He gets off his throne and he comes into human history, into your story, and he humbles himself. He loves people. He serves people. He knows people. He loves you. He serves you. And he knows you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. Jesus is our Passover. And what happens is Jesus comes, our great king, with his greater kingdom and the kingdom of God. And like Mordecai to Haman, we don't bow down to him. And he doesn't act like Haman. He doesn't get proud and arrogant. He doesn't have angry, vengeful wrath against us. He loves us and serves us. If the musicians would like to start coming back, it would be great to have some music played as we just sort of reflect on this. Like the two men that we read of in chapter 2, those two right at the start of my talk who were plotting against the king, we conspire to kill the king of kings. But unlike Xerxes, he doesn't have us crucified. He allows us to crucify him. And our humble, loving, gracious, servant king looks people in the eye who've plotted his demise and says, Father, forgive them. He looks you in the eye and forgives you. Jesus works out all the mistakes and Jesus takes the worst tragedy and makes it into the greatest glory. And this whole book is about him. Jesus offers a better hope than the Jewish nation ever knew of. And we can look back on Jesus' life and death and resurrection and know a better hope. We don't get what we deserve. We can base our future hope on knowing what Jesus has done for us. And our hope in God, it's not like, you know, I hope I pass that test. I hope we win that netball match. I hope they've still got my size. Our hope is different. And that's because there's a moment in history that sets this hope apart from any other. Peter, in 1 Peter, there's a verse, it says, In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
a living hope. We heard that earlier as well, a living hope. As painful and heartbreaking as some of our days have been and possibly will be, none will come close to the day we crucified the Lord. And yet even in that scene, God was big and strong and wise and merciful and present. He was there bringing about his plan to save us and secure our hope forever.